Uh, would you join me in a word of prayer this evening as we just quiet our hearts and our minds and ask the Lord to uh, work through his word and through his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you just for giving us the privilege of gathering together. You've commanded us to gather in this way. Uh, you've called us to be faithful uh, together, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, Father, as we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, we trust, we hope completely in you. We don't know when that day and that hour may be, but Father, we, we feel uh, the pangs of sin. We feel the struggle of uh, the cares of this world. We see the effects of a broken world due to sin and rebellion, and we long for you to come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day, we will continue to gather. As unpopular as it may be, whether legal or illegal, Father, we pray that you would give the strength, the courage, the resolve, and the faithfulness to gather as your church. So, Father, I pray that we would be mindful of the joy and the grace that it is to come together and to hear your word preached, to worship you in song, to uh, prioritize the public reading of Scripture, to joyfully and willingly gather together around your, love, your Lord's Supper, the communion, remembering the life, the death, the personal work of Jesus Christ. Those are such great privileges. And to submit ourselves under the authority of the Word of God as we hear it faithfully preached. Father God, we thank you for um, the timelessness of this, your local church. I pray that even as your church in Acts 2.42, in its earliest stages, they were committed to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Father, we desire for that to be a part of our DNA right now as Liberty Hills Bible Church. So Father, I pray that you work. I pray that you convict. I pray that you would encourage and challenge our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I referenced Acts 2.42, I, I couldn't help but think about our order of service this evening. And it was encouraging to think back to the New Testament, to remember Acts 2, and to think, hey, not much has changed. What the church was faithful to then is what we certainly should be faithful to today. And there are certainly uh, much overlaps, and I'm thankful that God has allowed us to be faithful to those things. Nothing more, nothing less. We just simply desire to be a New Testament biblical church. Amen? Amen. Well, James chapter number one, we're going to look this evening at just verse number two, where James implores through an imperative. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. This evening, it's going to serve a little bit more like an introduction to this next paragraph of, of text. I'm going to be responsible for eventually preaching through, down through verse number 18. 
And right now I have it teed up as uh, a three-week series. So, um, Lord willing, that's what it will stay. But uh, we're excited about continuing to work through this. But I love that James kicks off this, this letter to these Jewish Christians that have been scattered abroad. He kicks off uh, reminding them of the importance of what? Trials. And having a godly and biblical perspective of trials. And as such, the title of our message this evening will be The Unlikely Opportunity with Trials. The Unlikely Opportunity with Trials. And I don't know about you, but when we start talking about trials, the human nature, and certainly in our American brand of Christianity and this Western Christian world, uh, trials are not a popular topic for us to preach about from the pulpit. Right? The Christianity that we like to be accustomed to and to make our own is, is a Christianity, uh, a fellowship of Christ that is void of difficulty, that is void of suffering and trouble and trials. But as we look at this epistle of James and we look at this imperative that James kicks off this section to his readers, we're going to be reminded that God has not just allowed trials to come into our life, but he has a God-sized vision and purpose for allowing them in our lives. They're not void of purpose, but rather they have great meaning and a great opportunity is available to us as Christ followers in the midst of trials that can come into our life. So there is an unlikely opportunity for us when we consider trials. It's not what we may think it would be, but yet God has something to do through difficulty, through suffering, through trial, through loss. I pray that God would give us ears to hear that message. Because friends, it is not a popular one in our day, but it is a needed one. Why? Because it is a biblical one. We must be faithful to hear it, friends, this evening. As Pastor Dave reminded us just last week, James and this epistle fits uh, into the category more of wisdom literature, right? It's certainly an epistle with apostolic authority behind it, but yet it, it reads somewhat more like an Old Testament wisdom literature. And as such, James' purpose in this first section is just that. It is wisdom. This is the purpose that James has in mind for us here in this opening section. James has a desire to see his readers gain a wise perspective on this topic of trials. I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't know here this evening, but trials no doubt come in various forms, do they not? In those various forms of trials... They, they many times feel like just flat out suffering, difficulty, pain, trouble. And those things can cause anxiety and confusion and fear and distress if not properly understood in a biblical manner. Friends, I want us to come away from this introduction to trials in this First chapter of James, understanding this, that trials do come to faithful Christians. Trials do come 
to faithful Christians as well as to healthy churches. There's this misnomer, there's this misconception, there's this conflict that if we truly are living for God and walking in His ways, somehow, as a Christ follower, we're going to be exempt from these trials and difficulties and sufferings of life. This improper view of God's word has been promoted primarily by the health, wealth, and prosperity strands of the false gospel of our day. And if we're not careful, those tentacles can work their ways into our mind and our thinking and our interpretations of the circumstances that we're living. And so friends, let us be careful this evening and as I'm so thankful Pastor Andy reminded us of of the opportunity of recalibration as we come together to worship. This text absolutely serves in that manner to recalibrate our heart, our mind, our perspective, and our desires back towards that of Christ and his purposes for our life. And so friends, if you have fallen prey to these improper and inaccurate interpretations of following Christ, I pray this evening that the word of God would recalibrate your heart and your mind towards truth as it is presented in Scripture. Dr. Christopher Morgan reminds us that the proponents of the health, wealth, theology need to read afresh passages such as James 1, verses 2 through 18. We're also going to see suffering and trials kick back up in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, as James is going to revisit this topic. But as we look through the whole of the New Testament, Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 1, 1 Peter 1, 2 Timothy 3, and so many others, Old and New Testament, it's time for us to understand that suffering and trials and difficulties will be a part of our walk with the Lord. So just as the churches and Jewish Christians that were receiving this letter that were scattered abroad, uh, they they had and would continue to suffer in their their present day through uh, oppression of their government, through uh, different clashes with wealthy and those that were poor and a host of other things that we're going to tackle as we work through the book of James, we should not be surprised that when these Christians were experiencing trials that we would somehow be exempt, but rather we need to be ready and even willing to face trials even in our day. So what is the most common response to suffering trials and difficulty in In our day, when trials and difficulty hit, when something undesirable or unplanned uh, is is confronted in our life, we typically start with this two word question. I don't know if you can think of it yourself, but I've heard it many times uh, coming from my own mouth or my own heart or observing it. Others is in this world. We hear this question of why me? Right? In regards to trials. Why me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you allowed this to happen? And we, we, we ask this question and we, through anger and confusion and, and, and uh, all these other emotions that well up in the midst of trials and difficulties, 
we're not careful, this, this question of why me can suppress and it can drown out all that God desires to do in the midst of trials. This is the question that we ask God when we experience loss, suffering, and pain. This is a valid and legitimate question to grapple with. But as we work through this holy and spirit-inspired message, this letter of James to these Jewish Christians, I pray that God would do something in our heart and our life. I pray and my hope is that we would change that question just a bit. We would add one more word in that. Instead of asking God, why me? I pray that at the conclusion of this series through trials that we might be able to ask the question, why not me? You see, because as we as Christ followers understand the unlikely opportunity that is available to us through the vehicle of trials. I pray, although not in our own strength, that we would be able to embrace and that we would be able to be faithful in the midst of the trials that God has for our life. See, friends, the teaching of James in chapter one and the entire book for that matter is applicable to every single person in this room. Why? Because none of us are exempt from trials. None of us are exempt from trials. If you're not currently experiencing a trial in your life, just hold on and wait a moment and you will. Right? So James teaching right here in, in chapter one, it's, it's for the old, it's for the young, it's for the adolescent, it is for all of us. Why? Because trials are a part of God's economy and God's kingdom and he uses these trials to maximize his glory in this world. Maybe you currently have difficulty in your life. Maybe you experienced the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, caring for a disabled child, horrible terminal diagnosis, financial hardships, marital or relational difficulty, no matter what the flavor or aspect of your trial, God desires to use them for his glory. James reminds us that there is a divine purpose in trials, whether big or small. James will contend this, that God desires to use these trials of various kinds to point us back where? To the cross, back to Jesus. For what purpose? It's the progress of Christ's followers developing in Christ likeness. The purpose is this, that Christ's followers would develop in what? Christ likeness. This dichotomy that Pastor Dave talked about, this conflict or this struggle, this tension between faith and works, it, it works its way out in trials. True faith always produces works, as Pastor Dave reminded us. This idea could be explained in this way. True faith always produces what? Christ-likeness. These are the works of Christ being made present in, in our world, in our relationships that God puts in our path. 
If we are truly in Christ, we will begin, although imperfectly, to walk and to love and to live and to respond and to engage and to react as Christ did. This is the relationship between faith and works. Genuine faith will always produce Christ-likeness, works, living and loving and acting as Christ did when he was in this world. We start with the grace-enabled faith that could only be accomplished by God. And through that divine work on our behalf, that faith will always produce good works that glorify our Father, which is in heaven, as Matthew 5, 16 reminds us. We are not, nor was James advocating for, as Pastor Dave reminded us, that works earn or achieve faith in God. So what's the nuance here? The order of these two words of works and faith and faith and works, it matters, right? We start with grace-enabled faith and from that flows Christ-likeness, good works. So let us be clear. Works are efforts that will never produce saving faith. Trust as we work through this book that we will be reminded of that and it will give us the proper disposition and demeanor as we rely on the Holy Spirit to guide and direct our lives. But this beauty that is presented here in James chapter number one, he he anchors, James anchors this whole paragraph on this topic of perseverance through difficulty. He layers in so much other Uh, almost sidebar type conversations of different topics as we work our way through James chapter number one. He layers in uh, teaching on the sovereignty of God, prayer, wisdom, faith, doubt, wealth, poverty, partiality, the brevity of life. All of these topics are right here in this first section of chapter number one. And it's interesting that he layers in all these other topics. Why? Because Trials and difficulty are never experienced in a silo or a vacuum. It's never just a standalone that, hey, I'm in a trial and it's clean and neat and and tidy and we'll just let this trial run its course and we'll move on to the next thing. No, when we're in the midst of a trial, we're in the midst of suffering and difficulty and questions, does it not impact all these other areas of life? And so we have James acknowledging that. Drawing our attention to the word of God as we tackle these things such as the sovereignty of God, prayer, wisdom, faith, doubt, wealth, poverty, relationships with others, impartiality. Friends, we are going to be confronted with the unlikely opportunity that trials present before us. So this brings us to our big idea this evening. Our big idea is this, trials should be understood as a normative and expected vehicle by which God accomplishes and accelerates his progressive work of developing Christ-likeness within his followers. I'll read that one more time for you. Trials should be understood as a normative and expected vehicle by which God accomplishes and accelerates his progressive work of developing Christ-likeness within his followers. 
So James starts out in verse number two with an imperative. He says, count it all joy. And it's interesting to note as we work through this book of James that James contains the highest frequency of imperatives than any other book in the New Testament. Pastor Andy referenced this imperative here in his opening comments. And James, time and time again, over and over again, is going to challenge us, implore us, to take action. That if we are truly in the faith, Christ followers, that we should be pursuing Christ's likeness by the power of his Holy Spirit and his grace working it out in our lives. So as such, this servant of God challenges his readers. And as we bridge that gap of time to us as well today to count it all joy. Just to pause for a moment, this imperative that James kicks this letter off with is no easy imperative for us to swallow. This is not some quick self-help strategy to a better life. Christ-likeness doesn't work that way, does it not? This is James being real and honest and upfront as he is tackling the challenges and difficulties of their day, an oppressed group of Christians. Dynamics, politically, economically, are completely unknown. These new Jewish Christians have been essentially uprooted out of uh, the normalcy of Judaism. Now they have, how do we fit back into this world? They've been scattered abroad across the known world and they are struggling to know what does life following Christ look like? And James is drawing their attention right out of the gates to this reality that they are already living trials. But he gives his readers a wise perspective in how to approach and view and process the reality and the presence of trials in their day. And this countercultural response to trials that James tees up here in this verse, it starts with understanding this meaning of the word count. This imperative starts and hinges right here with this word. James says for them to count. He wastes no time in getting right to it in his letter. He draws them into their understanding of trials. To count something has the idea of holding a view or opinion with regard to something. This could mean to think about, to believe, to consider, or to regard something a certain way. So James is challenging not the validity or the presence of trials, because they know they're there, they're living it right now, but rather he's recalibrating their mind, their thinking, their perspective on these trials. This is the unlikely opportunity that we have in the presence of trials. This is why we took some time as we 
even just this, this evening, took some time previously to talk about how we often think about the, the why me type of question. Because this is the exact process that James is engaging in with his original readers. He is challenging their thinking and perspective on trials. And as such, our thinking should be challenged in a similar way. So moving on from the imperative, he says to count, to have a proper view or understanding, to hold this topic of trials in a proper regard. There's an opportunity in trials. God is using trials. These, these trials are not void of purpose and meaning. When there's loss, when there's difficulty, when there's pain, there's suffering. It's not just for the sake of suffering, but rather God is working. He's there. He's present. And he wants to do something real in your life for his glory. So he moves on from this imperative and he points our attention to this next word. Count it all joy. This next phrase, all joy. Not just any joy, but rather all joy. So let's break this phrase down and understand it a bit better. This word all in the Greek is intentionally used here as an intensifier of joy. That's described here. Robert uh, Plummer describes it this way. Not every element of suffering is joy. Can we say amen to that, right? It's not necessarily pleasant and joyful to experience the reality of suffering. But however severe one's suffering, every trial is a time and an opportunity for intense joy. It's important for us to remember that this concept of this idea of joy in trial is not unique to James' epistle. We see this in uh, the first letter of Peter, chapter one, verses six through seven. In this you, what? Rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, encourages the believers there at the church of Corinth, blessed be the Father, excuse me, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Friends, do you get that? Jesus Christ God the Father, His Holy Spirit, that paraclete, that comforter, He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort, get this, those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Friends, the beauty of suffering is that it gives us a testimony. It gives us an experience by which we can do what? We can minister to others that are going through difficult trials of similar kinds. We can strengthen, encourage, and help our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 6, Paul goes on. 
excuse me, verse five, he says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. Paul says, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Sufferings are not void of purpose and meaning. It's in that suffering that we receive this grace-enabled, providential, ordained comfort that only God could provide. This peace that passes all understanding that is void of cliches, but is real in our day and in your life and the trials and difficulties that you are experiencing, the unlikely opportunity with trials that we have so we can experience immense joy because we are viewing and understanding these trials. We're counting these trials the way God himself intended. So we understand in that moment when trial, hardship, and suffering knock at the door of of your life and my life, we understand that things, however difficult they may be, are not to harm us, but rather they are to be viewed and understood as an opportunity to experience Christ-saturated joy, Holy Spirit, supernatural-enabled joy that can only be experienced and grasped a hold of through the vehicle of trials. This is the unlikely opportunity before us, friends. This is the joy that Christ himself came to offer. Do you remember John chapter number 15? Pastor Dave alluded to a text just last week. I'm going to move further up in this a discourse that Christ is having with his disciples. He says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Since the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy can and will only be complete and full when it is achieved God's ways. And that, friends, is through meeting trials of various kinds. not what I would choose in my finite way. It's not what I would hope for in my understanding of life and human nature. But God in his perfect wisdom and understanding has allowed trials to be the vehicle through which we become more like Christ. Trials can cause an incredible amount of anxiety and rest in the hearts of believers, but rest assured, as the author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, since then 
We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Get this, friends, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. What's our response to that? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Does God the Father know about sacrifice? Does God the Father know about difficulty? Does God the Father have, for lack of better words, some skin in this game? Did he not give his only son? Did he not pour out his wrath on his only begotten son? That separation between God the Father and his most beloved son, we have difficulty fathoming that, but yet God ordained it. And through that pain, through that suffering, through that sacrifice, we have hope. We have life. We have healing. We've been reconciled. Our relationship with God the Father is now restored. Why? Because of that giving of His Son. So friends, this evening as we continue to contemplate and consider Christ his person and his work and ultimately his death on the cross, we were reminded that it didn't finish there because he defeated sin, death, and hell. He rose again on the third day. And we can have hope and life for the one to come because he is faithful to fulfill his promises to his covenant people. Would you close your eyes, bow your head? Would you just think back for a moment right now on these realities? Ask yourself a question this evening. Are you counting it all joy and trials at various times? These trials are not cookie-cutter trials. They come in different shapes and forms. And, uh, they are various in nature. But one thing is sure is that they will be present. So I wonder, is our thinking calibrated away from this world into the Word of God? Are we thinking? Are we viewing trials the way that God says we should? Is our perspective on trials His perspective on trials? And I wonder this evening if you are counting it all joy. Are you experiencing the joy of Jesus Christ in your life this evening? I'm not talking about some vain, fleeting happiness that comes by way of a new shiny toy. I'm talking about joy that is real and is substantive. A joy that is anchored in the hope of Christ. That although Heart of my flesh may fade away, and I can have joy and hope in Jesus Christ. 
Although I may experience loss and trouble and difficulty and suffering this side of eternity, I know that those things are but temporal. And as we were reminded even this evening that God, the just Father, will make all things right. And one day, after every knee is bowed and every tongue is confessed that He is Lord, He's going to wipe away all tears, all sorrow, not perfect fellowship with His Son, the Triune Godhead, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit will be enjoyed and experienced for all eternity. We have an opportunity, this side of eternity, to embrace the unlikely opportunity with trials so that we can experience in a more full and complete way the joy of Christ, the joy of our salvation. Father God, I pray this evening as we have introduced this idea of trials, we know that you have so much more for us as we work through this passage. Looking forward to what you're going to do. Father, I pray that you would stir us, that you would draw us this evening to the foot of the cross, and we would find grace and mercy and help of our time.